morning, familia. Did you guys hear that response to the word of God? Loud and clear by a little one. You guys should imitate her. Amen? For those of you that are new to the church, uh, welcome uh, to Wheaton Bible Church. Uh, welcome those of you that are streaming from the East Worship. Welcome those of you that are worshiping with us online. And of course, welcome all of you that I get to see uh, right in front of me. Uh, today, we are going back into our journey uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you remember for the last few weeks, if you have been with us, for the last few weeks, we have been paying attention uh, and spending a lot of time in the last hours of Jesus, actually the last night before Jesus goes to the cross. And one of the things that is consistent about uh, across the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that every single one of them spent quite a, quite a long time in the last hours of Jesus. It almost feels like if the, the writers of the gospel purposely slow down so we don't miss any details about the last hours of Jesus. It's almost like a, like a slow motion clip. And I think that slow motion clips are important because it's only when we watch these slow motion clips that we really, really pay attention to the things that we missed before. Now, let me, I'm going to give you an example of how that plays out and how that looks like. Uh, how many of you guys have uh, children or grandchildren? Just raise your hand. How many of you guys remember those kids getting ready for or are getting ready for homecoming? Yeah. For those of you that your kids are, that's what the school does, uh, public schools or private schools during this season, that's what, the, that's what the people start getting ready about uh, for homecoming. And so in my house for the last uh, four years, that has been, this has been the season in which we spend a ton of money getting ready for homecoming, uh, which I also have a, a ton of questions if that is uh, uh, money worth spent. Um, what is interesting, though, about homecoming, though, is that the boy, usually the boy, is supposed to be really creative in the way he asks the girl. Now, I know in like, modern times, girls also do it, but listen, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not one of those. So I prefer a boy taking the time, being creative, and how is it that he's going to ask the question. So I want you to imagine, this is fiction, by the way, never seen this before, it's just fiction, just in case. So imagine this boy putting this work together. You know, putting this little display together, putting fireworks together, all of these things to arrive to go to the girl's house, which, by the way, she happens to be with her best friend. And, of course, the whole event is kind of cheesy, if you will. But he comes and asks the girl, would you like to, be, uh, would you like to go with me to, um, to homecoming? What I've noticed, though, is that usually girls respond yes before the boy finishes the sentence. All fiction, all fiction. So everyone starts clapping because the girl says yes, and everyone is super happy, you know, like it's a milestone in the life of a, of a high schooler. And everything moves fast. And everyone is happy. It happened to be that one of the, per the people that were there were capturing everything in the phone because that's what people do now. Instead of enjoying the moment, you're recording the moment. I hope you know that I'm su being super sarcastic today for some reason. 
Everything moves super fast, and then everyone sees that clip that the person recorded. And it's only when the clip goes in the slow motions that you start to notice things that you never noticed before. And you notice the expression of the boy. You could almost see that the boy is crying as he's asking the question. You can see how the girl is responding before the boy finishes the question. But you also notice in the background the best friend of the girl and her expression as the, her friend is being asked and the expression of the girl in the background is not of joy and happiness. It's more like something tells me that I was not a real friend. And I bet you that because of that little thing, that relationship will never stay the same. Agree? That only happens when you slow down and pay attention to the details. And I think that's very similar to what the Gospel of Matthew is doing here. It's slowing down so we pay attention to every detail because if we pay attention to every detail, we also are not going to stay the same. And I want us to pay attention to very few words in the text. And I want us to see how the text is actually going to compare Jesus and Judas and Jesus and Peter. Because the more we make this comparison, the more we see how different they are, the more beautiful and amazing and perfect Jesus looks right before he goes to the cross. So I want us to do this slow motion clip here and pay attention to two words, the kiss and the sword. With the kiss, we're going to be paying attention to Judas, and with the sword, we're going to be paying attention to Peter. So I need you to do me a favor, look at the person next to you, whether those of you that are here in the west and those of you that are here there in the east, look at the person next to you and say, you have to pay attention to the details. Go ahead. All right, let's come back over here. The kiss. You know, this event is so popular, so known, that even the secular world knows what happened at Gethsemane. So to give you a little bit of context here, Jesus is, is at Gethsemane. Remember, this is uh, uh, Pastor Phil preached about this a couple of weeks ago. He's pouring out his heart before the Father. Uh, he's trying to figure out if there's a way around the cross, and he realizes that the Father says that the cross is the only way to go. And in the midst of this agony, he's asking his friends, his three closest friends, to pray with him, and for some reason, they don't, they just can't. So after that event happened, verse 46 says that, they, that Jesus says, rise, let us go. Here comes the betrayer, the betrayer. And with that in mind, now we step into verse 47. It says that Judas came, one of the 12, pay attention to the details. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. Now, why do I say that you got to pay attention to the details? Because it is unique here to see that Judas is no longer just Judas. That he's also named the betrayer and that, that, that Matthew is emphatic and saying that he's one of the 12. Now, this is interesting because we all know that he's one of the 12. 
But I think that the reason why Matthew is being intentional about highlighting that is for us to remember that Judas was the one that walked with Jesus for three years. He got to see Jesus in action for three years. He got to hear Jesus' words for three years. He got to experience the love, the compassion, the commitment, the person of Jesus for three years. And we have to pay attention to that just also to know that from a biblical perspective, Judas has no reason why not to love Jesus. There is no reason why Judas should hate Jesus. After three years of walking with his Savior, the only, the most sound, logical thing you could do is to love Jesus. So now we have to ask the question, how then did Judas get to this place that he was willing to betray Jesus? If there is no possible explanation on why he was willing to betray Jesus. And this is where the word his comes in. So the text says that apparently Gethsemane was super dark. And the way Judas had decided to show the guards who Jesus was, was by coming up to Jesus and giving him a kiss. So look at what it says in verse 49. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed them. Now, the expression, uh, greetings, Rabbi, it, it's kind of a, a polite and respectful expression, which, which makes, uh, makes this event even more evil, if you will. It's almost like if you're saying to someone that you respect, is good evening, sir, or good evening, uh, lady, or good evening, something like that. And it's after he says that, that he gave him a kiss. Now, it's important for us to know that in that context and that time, there's, that was normal. It was actually normal for a man to greet another man with a kiss. Usually it would be one kiss on each side. That was not the issue. That was not the problem. The problem is, in that context and in that time, is that you would never, if you, had a, if you had a master or a teacher or someone that was superior to you, you would never, ever, ever, ever kiss that person first. I'm borrowing this from Leo, uh, Leo Morris, which is one of the scholars that I've been checking for this. And he says this. A disciple of a teacher was never permitted to greet his teacher first since this implied equality. So stop there for a second and think about this. What is it that Judas was saying to all and to Jesus? When he kissed them first. Pay attention to the detail. And here church is where we see Judas struggle. And here we see why is it that Judas was willing to betray the person that he walked with for three years. And here we see the magnitude of his sin and his struggle. This is basically what Judas is saying to Jesus right before he betrays him. You are not better than me. You are not over me. You and I are equal. You 
are not my Lord. Isn't that crazy? He could not see Jesus as his God. He could not see Jesus as Lord. Isn't that also one of the things that we struggle with? See, at the end of the day, all of our struggles we got, in my opinion, most of them at least, is because we are having issues submitting to the lordship of Jesus. See, part of the issue, with, even with Christianity today, is that we think that God is just our friend and not also our Lord. I want to make the argument that that is your primary issue and my primary issue. The part, of the part of the reason why we struggle so much with our Christianity at times is because we have a hard time submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. I'm actually going to make the argument that unless you as a believer are a part of, part of what it means to be a Christian for you is to submit your will to his Lordship, I would, you would have to actually question your Christianity. Let, let me push it a little more. I am not sure. That a person that does not submit his will or her will to the lordship of Jesus, I am not sure if that person actually has a saving relationship with Jesus. I think that we may like Jesus. I think that we may like to hang around with Jesus. But unless Jesus is Lord, you have no reason why to think that you're already a believer. Or someone may say, well, that's harsh. Sarcastic and aggressive on same Sunday? Well, I'm going to give you one verse and you, you tell me what you make of that. This is the verse. This is the verse that is used in evangelism to bring people into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 verse 9. Just listen to it and look at what it says. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus is Savior. I'll explain that in a second. Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Did you notice that? To become a Christian is not just to believe in Jesus as a Savior. You have to believe that. To believe in Jesus is not just to say that he's a friend of sinners. You have to believe that. But it's much more than that. It's for us to confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that he is Lord. Kevin Young has a really good definition of what that means. He says, when you, when you confess Jesus as Lord, you are saying, Jesus can call the shots for my life. Jesus can tell me how I should think about myself, about marriage, and about the world. Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Not me. I am not an autonomous Christian, a creature. I live to serve this master. That's what you are saying when you say, Jesus is my Lord. We are not autonomous uh, creatures. See, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that he is the ultimate authority, not me. 
that he rules over my life, not me. That there's only one Lord. It's either Jesus or it's me, but he cannot be both. Don't you think that Jesus is being super clear? I think that as modern-day Christians, we really have to pay attention to that. Because we are part of a society in which the fastest religion going on right now is the religion of the self-worship. The fastest religion, growing religion in the world right now. And why do you think that people are obsessed with self-worship? Because we only worship that, the one that we think is Lord. Um, there's a scholar that has been writing a lot about this in the last uh, 10 years, if you will. His, his name is Dr. Uh, Thaddeus Williams. Uh, he's a professor of, uh, of theology in, bio, in, in Biola, Uni, Biola University. Um, and in one of his writings, he says this. That in this culture, we, uh, our culture is living now under these six commandments. In this new religion, people are living under six commandments. Which is interesting because he would say that if the Lord is not Lord over us, then our mind is the source and the standard of truth. So no matter what, we ought to trust ourselves. Hashtag, the answers are within. That's what he says. Another commandment for our culture is, if the Lord is not our Lord, then our emotions are the authority. So nobody should ever question our feelings. Hashtag, follow your heart. Haven't you heard that one before? By the way, next week, if you come back, we're going to talk about that. He says that a third commandment for the culture today is that if the Lord is not our Lord, then we are sovereign. We are omnipotent. And we want to bend the universe to fulfill our dreams and desires. Hashtag, live your truth. Another commandment for our culture will be, if the Lord is not our Lord and we are our Lord, then we are supreme. We always act according to our chief end, to glorify ourselves and to enjoy ourselves forever. Hashtag, YOLO. If the Lord is not the Lord... If the Lord is not our Lord and we are our Lord, then we are the standard of goodness. Don't let anyone oppress us by saying that we are sinners and need grace. Hashtag never change. He wrote this in 2021. And he just came up with another book that adds another four commandments. But because I want to preach the whole sermon, I'm not going to give you the rest of them. Don't you think that at least for Christians... Understanding that to, believe, to be a Christian means that Jesus is Lord. Not your opinions, not your traditions, not your emotions, not what you like, not what you feel. Jesus is Lord. And here we're going to see how different is Jesus to Judas. I told you that part of what the Gospel of Matthew doing, is doing here is comparing Jesus and Judas. And you're going to see in Jesus a different spirit, a different attitude, a different behavior. Look at what it says in verse 50. Jesus said to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, this is one of those verses that if you're not careful, you read yourself into the text. Meaning that when you read the word friend into the text, you think that Jesus... Uh, that Jesus is behaving the way 
you would. Now, in full confession, I'm reading this. Before I was doing the studying thing, just reading this, and for some reason, I always thought that when Jesus was using the word friend, he's being kind of uh, sarcastic. He's being a little bit of, you know, ironic, if you will. So the first time I'm reading this by myself, I'm thinking, if I'm Jesus, I'll be like, okay, friend. And this is where we have to, to dig a little deeper than just what we think is in the text. Because in order for us to understand the tone that Jesus is using here, we have to see how Jesus used the same word in two different occasions prior to this. So, for example, the first time we see it use it is Matthew chapter 20. And he's explaining the parable of the workers of the vineyard. And Jesus is being accused there of being unfair. And then we see another example in Matthew chapter 22 in the, in the parable of the wedding banquet. In which someone comes into the wedding with, the, with an improper attire. Now, we already preached to those, so I'm not going to explain those, but this is the gist of it. In both of those parables, Jesus is using the word friend to confront. No issues there. He's saying there's something wrong with you. That's what he's doing to Judas. What I want you to see, though, is that in both parables, the same thing that we see here with Judas, is that Jesus is confronting, but not for condemnation. Jesus uses the word friend as a way to bring people in. Jesus uses the word friend as a means of grace. Jesus uses the word friend so the person re repents. Church, I want you to see why this is so important. Because on one end, we have Judas that struggles with the lordship of Jesus. And on the other end, we have Jesus as Lord fighting for Judas' soul all the way to the end. This is the last conversation they have. And Jesus is fighting for Judah's soul all the way to the end. Isn't that the reason why Peter, later on in his epistle, would say that God does not desire anyone to perish, but to come to repentance. That's exactly what we see with Jesus here. Look at how Jesus responds to the one that thinks that is equal to him. Friend, you, you don't need to go this way. I, I want you with me. Come to me. Come to me. See, I think that there are people here right now in which you think that because of what you have done, God is against you. But if you are in Jesus, the attitude of Jesus toward you, God's attitude toward you is always of calling you friend. 
he will confront you. He will say what you're doing is wrong. He will call you to repent. But he's for you. Not against you. You know that I learned that super fast in my walk with the Lord? Because I realized that one of the dynamics, the things that I struggle with, is when I struggle, if I say something wrong in thought, uh, or say something wrong, or motive is wrong, or action is wrong, something goes wrong, the tendency of the human being is to walk away from God instead of toward God. And isn't that what the devil does? He used whatever you struggle you have to keep you away from God. And I decided years ago that regardless of what I go through, that regardless of what I say or think or, or feel, even in the midst of my sin, I would, drag, I would drag myself back into the presence of Jesus. I would push myself into the presence of Jesus knowing that Jesus' attitude toward me is never to reject me, but always to bring me in. Is that how you view Jesus? So that's the comparison between Judas and Jesus. Now let's do a comparison between Peter and Jesus. Point number two, the sword. Now Judas brings all these guards. The guards get a hold of Jesus. And in verse 51, look at what it says. And behold, one of those, and we know that that's Peter, because of the other Gospels, who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, if you have been reading with us, going through this, uh, through this journey together, you already know that Peter has issues, man. He's got the tendency to do before thinking. He's got the tendency to react before processing. That's just who Peter is. He's driven by impulse or emotions, not reason. That's Peter. See, I think that Peter could have been a great candidate to be part of our culture today. But in light of what Peter did, look at how Jesus responds. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And it is here when we start to see that there's something underneath Peter's behavior. Now, before... I make that clear, at least I share my thoughts with you on this one. I do want to say, and, and once again, we will talk about this later on, but I do want to say that I don't think that Peter um, uh, was being phony here. I, I actually think that Peter was being honest. Actually, I think that Peter was probably the most courageous of all the disciples. That's not the issue. The issue is how Peter views the world, views himself, and views salvation. What is the issue underneath the issue? And I want to make the argument that there are three layers, if you will, to Peter's struggle. So we're going to do the job of a counselor here for a second. Because I want us to dig deep into Peter's issue. So at the first very, uh, you could say, top layer, 
first layer, first thing, you could see that Peter sees the sword as a means of salvation. Meaning, he thinks that the sword, which represents violence, is the way you fix things. He thinks that violence is the way you ought to impose your will on somebody else. Now, because Jesus sees that, he's part of the reason why he responds and says, Peter, what are you doing? For all who take the sword will perish by the sword simply means, did you know that violence brings more violence? Violence never fixes a problem. I have to say that this is part of the issue I have when both either a man or a woman, whenever they're arguing, the first thing that they do is raise their voice. Do you know why we do that? To intimidate people. Because we think that violence fixes things. Don't you think that modern-day Christians need to remember that? Listen, whenever you behave like that, if that is you, you are not reflecting the character of Jesus that is the Prince of Peace and is humble and gentle. So if you have social media or an email or a computer or a phone, if that's your struggle, get rid of all of that. Because violence, even with words, never fix a problem. And it's the character of God, the one that is being put in display through you. This misrepresentation of God being displayed through you. That's the first surface level. Peter thinks that violence is the solution for salvation. Underneath that, there's another issue. Peter thinks that violence is the solution because Peter thinks... That he is in control. Actually, I would say that he's got kind of a savior complex. You know what I mean by that? He's someone that thinks that has the power and the ability to save himself and save others. And the only reason why I say that is because of what Jesus says in verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father as he's correcting him? And he will at once send, uh, send me more than 12 legions of angels. You know what that means? Jesus says to Peter, I don't need your help. I know you mean well, but I don't need your help. If I need help, I could just call out on my father, and my father will send 72,000 angels to help me. Why is Jesus responded that way? Because he knows that Peter struggles with the Savior complex. Peter thinks that he's in control. Peter is trying to be violent because he thinks that if he's violent, he has control. How about if I tell you that there's another layer that we got to deal with? So he thinks that he violence is the solution. And underneath, he thinks that, that he, violence is the solution because he's in control. But underneath that, there's one belief that I think is very popular today. And it's this, that he actually thinks that salvation is by works. That we get to fix what is wrong with us. That we get to fix what needs to be fixed in order to be accepted before God. 
one issue with three different layers. Now, how is Jesus different to Peter? In the midst of all of this, one of the other gospels shows us Jesus' attitude toward the man that got his ear chopped off. You remember that? Jesus, instead of grabbing the sword and saying, yes, let's fight against these people. He grabs the ear. He puts it back. And he heals it. Pay attention to the details. You know what Jesus is saying? To Peter and the rest of the people there present, violence is not the answer. Love is. Violence is not the answer. Healing is. See, Jesus is telling Peter, you don't need to do this because my father is still in control. Can you see how much we have to learn from our Savior? Actually, even as Jesus, before as he, he knows that he's going to go to the cross, he is displaying something that Peter ought to have. In the midst of a struggle, in the midst of suffering, before he goes to the cross, Jesus still believes that his father not only is in control, but that his plan is good. And that he's going to fulfill his purposes. You know how I know that that's what Jesus is thinking? Because of verses 54 and 56. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? 56. But all this has taken place for the scriptures of the prophets, of the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. This is Jesus' way of saying, my father had a plan. My father will fulfill his plans. And even if it, this looks painful, he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. The scriptures will be fulfilled. That's a smack in the face against someone that thinks that violence is the solution, that we have control, and that we are saved by works. Can you see why Jesus, in the midst of all of this, in his interaction with Judas and uh, in interaction with Peter, he's very different to everyone else. He's so much like us and nothing like us. He loves the one that betrays him. He loves until the very end. He fights for the people's souls until the very end. He does not surrender to fear. He chooses what is right even if it hurts. He trusts his father's plans and heart. He does not defend himself. He heals his enemy. He's patient with his followers, um, with his followers' dumbness. And he's much more, much more tender, much more loving much more compassionate than any of us. This is part of the reason why Jesus qualifies to be the only Savior. Because Jesus did live the life that none of us have lived. But the text does not stop there. Because not only he lived the life that no one has lived, we qualified him as a Savior, but he also died the death that we all deserve. And in all of this, we get this hint of what was going to happen in the cross. Right at the end of the text, in verse 56, we see this. 
Then all the disciples left them and fled. So the concept of loneliness, no, the concept of being alone is all throughout the text, you know? This is the very people that a few chapters ago told them, we will never walk away from you, Jesus. And if you notice, Jesus was left alone at Gethsemane when he was wrestling with the wrath of God and the reality of the cross. And if you notice, Jesus was left alone here as he's heading to the cross. And as we will see later, Jesus was left alone, even by the Father, as he's dying on a cross. Why this concept of aloneness is so important in the Gospel of Matthew? Because Jesus alone can take the wrath you and I deserve. Because Jesus alone dies in the place of Judas. Because Jesus alone dies in the place of Peter. Because Jesus alone dies in the place of people like you and me that carry a Judas inside and a Peter inside. Because Jesus alone not only lived the life that no, no one has lived, but died the death that we all deserve. See, the closer we get to the cross, the more we see how amazing and beautiful and perfect our Lord is. Why wouldn't we submit our wills to him? Why wouldn't we trust his goodness and his plans even when we suffer? Why wouldn't we surrender our lives to him completely? Amen? Let's pray. Wonderful Savior, we are grateful that not only we get to hear and see who Jesus is, But we get to be reminded how different Jesus is to any, any of us. Which that in itself, Lord, paints the picture of a Jesus that is like no one else. That truly lived the life that no one has lived and truly died the death that we all deserve. I pray, Lord, that as we see Jesus, this Jesus that loves until the very end, this Jesus that takes the sword instead of giving the sword, this Jesus that is merciful and loving and kind may be so glorified in our minds and hearts that submitting our wills to him is not an issue. Lord, help us die to our desire to want to be our own saviors. And trust your heart, your character, and your plans. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the church says.